For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my, un- my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Let's pray. God, we want to thank you for these wonderful truths in your word. That life is precious. Life is a gift. And we come before you this morning to lift up Paul, Melody, Caleb, and Zachary. We grieve with them and we cry with them. But we also know that your word is true. That this is one's life has always been in your hands. And so we pray and ask that you would go before them as you already have been. And give them wisdom in the coming appointments. And pray for Mel's health as well. And we pray that your kingdom will come and your will be done. We pray for the coming days and months and years. That you would use this as a witness to Caleb and Zachary. And also to all of us as a church family. Father, we pray for our city. Our city in many ways does not value life and with the different laws and things that are in place. And we pray for those political leaders who are involved in this lawmaking area. We pray for the families who have been affected by losing their loved ones at a young age. That you would comfort them. We pray for organisations such as the Babes Project have been down the road ministering to women in crisis pregnancy. That this idea of life being of great value, that life is wonderful and life that is given by you will continue permeating in all areas in our culture and in our society and even in our world that we live in. And even in trialling times, it will be a witness that we save a great God, a life-giving God. God, we come before you and pray for Alan, Ken, James and Rob and other Uh, Christ-centred followers of yours will be at the Australian Islamic Peace Conference. First of all, we ask for your protection on them from the enemy, but we also pray that they will stand boldly, lovingly and affectionately to proclaim the truth of the gospel as they engage with the men and women there. We pray as these Islamic leaders um, proclaim these so-called truths that their words will fall to Um, years that I will deaf to these uh, untruths, Lord. We pray and ask that we, as a culture and as a people, will be wise, but also bold and loving and courageous to all our neighbours who don't know you. And you would bind those things that may stir in our hearts, that may stir fear, but rather engage, just as you came into this world and engaged with a broken world by living that perfect life that we can't live, by dying on the cross for our sins. And we thank you that you're risen and now you've called us to go and make disciples of all nations, including the many nations and tribes that come into our shores here in Australia. You'll give us the boldness to stand for that, for your glory. And Lord, now we pray that you prepare our hearts to hear from your word. As Nathan comes and preaches, as we continue to understand and comprehend these truths of I am, you will settle our hearts and our minds to hear, and you will empower us through your spirit to apply. May it be for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. It's going to be a short video, just quickly. Recently, um, oh, wow. Did you hear the first part or not? (laughs) Recently, Julie and I went to see a movie. The movie was uh, called Patriot's Day. You know, it's one of those sort of spur of the moment type things. You know know the type of thing that you have there where you haven't spent a lot of time together. Just let's go and enjoy a movie together. And a much-needed night out. I confess, I, I didn't know much about 
this movie before going to it. I sort of knew it was based on some historical events that uh, happened in Boston, Massachusetts back in 2013. It related to the annual marathon that is run in that city. And did you know that that marathon actually has been running in that city consistently since 1897? So it's a long-term event. And and Patriots Day is a day that is celebrated like, much like Labor Day is tomorrow throughout the, the United States. I also knew that from history that two indiscriminate bombings occurred at the finish line on the April 2013. They occurred some three hours after the elite athletes had finished their race and uh, the also-rans, if you like, or like you and I, probably not me, but some of you who can run still for 42 kilometres would be six hours into your race reaching the finish line. And these uh, bombs went off. That's all I knew about the movie. However, seated in that cinema, I was captivated from beginning to end. You see, you watch the joys of this city collectively coming together on an annual holiday and just enjoying the springtime. As the buds started to bloom and the flowers started to blossom, this great event, this great annual event was occurring and, and many, many people were down there at the finish line watching the conclusion. Perhaps cheering on friends, perhaps cheering on family. So you saw the joy of this holiday. And then the joy moved and swung to absolute bewilderment and unbelief and anger because people died. Innocent people died and many innocent people were maimed, losing legs, losing limbs, losing arms. So you can understand what caused the anger. You can understand that their safety and their security had been destroyed in that one moment of madness. You see, the perpetrators were still at large and as the story unfolded, it centered on the hunt for those who were responsible. And a really unusual thing happened to this thriving metropolis during this chase. It was, or it became under martial law. This large city, twice, three times the size of Melbourne, was shut down. You could not move in or out of the city as the hunt continued. Your freedom had been hemmed in you went free to go outside. You went free to, to interact with others on the street. You went free to go to work. For some of you, that would be quite, quite good. But you went free to do anything. And you can imagine the fear that was gripping them. This fear of insecurity and lack of safety. But you know what happened as we watched through this movie? The remarkable thing that happened, this fear united the city in a remarkable way. Through their united adversity, as they considered this absolute tragedy, as they considered those who were maimed and injured, the city rallied around each other. And they developed a slogan. And the slogan was, Boston Strong. Two simple words, Boston Strong. And in that slogan, it became the catch cry for the healing and the restoration and the focus of the city. I think one particular moment in this movie showed the full intent behind the slogan. The main character was a police officer by the name of Tommy Sanders, or Saunders. And he summed up the day 
So this is after everything had occurred, after the bombings, and 48 hours later, the perpetrators had been caught. He summed it up, and he said this. What I saw today, good versus evil, love versus hate. There's only one weapon you have to fight back with. It's love. We wrap our arms around each other. I don't think there's any way that they could ever win. Tommy was highlighting that Boston Strong meant that love would conquer. That no matter what the adversity, love would conquer. You know, many years before this particular event, we have Jesus commanding the same thing. He shows us, especially in this portion of Scripture that we're going to look at today, which really is a a snapshot of Jesus' final words to his beloved disciples before he goes to the cross. He says, love will conquer. You see, in, in John chapter 13, please turn there with me. We've got John 13 through 17. It's what is known as the upper room discourse. Some have called it the, the farewell discourse or the farewell speech or the final instructions that Jesus is passing on to his disciples before he is crucified before the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And during this Passover feast, Jesus starts by washing his disciples' feet. An act of enormous love. As he gives them an example to follow, he sits down and he sits amongst the twelve. And note, he also washed Judas's feet, the one who would betray. He sits there and in an amazing act of love, he washes their feet. Why? To give them an example to follow. Then after Judas leaves, he issues a command. In John 13, 34 and 35, he says this, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. And then he says to Peter, You're going to deny me three times, but don't let your heart be troubled, Peter. And that's not just a throwaway line, that's a command. Let not your heart be troubled, Peter. Even though you're going to deny me, believe in me, believe in God, because I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is only one exclusive way of salvation, and that is Christ. As we heard from John several weeks ago. And then he moves on through, through John 14, and John 14, 15 says this. He reaffirms the command that he's just given. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. You get the picture? Discipleship is wrapped up in the abiding love of Christ. If you're a follower of Christ, you abide in his love. And then he promises the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm not going to leave you alone. But you realize the context here The disciples didn't have the New Testament to refer to. The disciples had the Old Testament, yes, 
and they had the fulfillment of Scripture coming from the Old Testament as Christ consistently says, I am this, I am that, I'm fulfilling this, I'm fulfilling that. But all they had was an oral tradition. All they had was Jesus' words through those three years they had been with him. And he says, you know what? The Spirit is going to be poured out upon you and you will remember all things I have commanded you. So let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. That's John 14, 27. So what Jesus was doing, he was saying, you are to be disciple strong. You are to abide in my love. You see, all these instructions were given to a bunch of men who were really unsure about the future. They had incredible insecurity. They wonder where Judas has gone. They thought he was just going to buy some more bread for the Passover. They didn't really fully understand that Christ had to die, be buried and rise again. That was concealed from them. If you read through the other Gospels, it was concealed. Even though it was proclaimed, it was concealed and was not fully revealed until his resurrection. But he said... These things as great words of comfort. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in me, believe in God. You see, they heard all of Jesus talk that, that he, he was going to have to die. They had heard, and even John records it, that he is the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. For the disciples, this time was a, a great time of fear and, and lack of security. They did not know what was about to happen. Let's read together. If you've got your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 14. If you haven't got a Bible, we've got plenty up the front here. Please help yourself. Let's turn to John 14. And we'll pick the story up in verse 25. Peace I leave with you. Sorry, verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes, before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, 
that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus here identifies himself with the the final I am statement in the Gospel of John. There are seven of them. Seven of these statements. The statements are, you know, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. So what's significant about this statement and name for Jesus? After all, this is just a bit of picture language. It's a, it's a bit of a metaphor. The heart of it is designed to, to give the disciples great comfort and, and great security. What's the one word that is repeated in these eight verses more than any other? Abide. Again, translated, Remain. But you know, why would Jesus use this picture of a vine? And this picture of vine is different to what we understand as we go through the Yarra Valley. Who likes driving through the Yarra Valley? It's beautiful, isn't it? Who likes stopping for the old glass of wine? That's okay too. All right. So you drive through the Yarra Valley and, and what do you see? What do you notice about driving through the Yarra Valley? Beautiful straight rows. Beautiful tended rows of vine. You notice that the vine is up on a trellis. You notice the vine is much like here, just twisting around the trellis and and in the good years you see the fruit hanging. That's not your typical ancient Near East picture of viticulture. You see, the vines and, uh, in Israel, most of them, not all of them, but 90% of them would trail on the ground. There would be no trellis, okay? So you wouldn't see these beautiful soldiers in a row. You would just have vines growing up a fertile hill on no trellis. And why is this? Because they believe that the grapes would ripen a little bit more slowly under the shadow of the leaves. So it was a a time issue for them. It is also a technique to, because uh, Israel is so arid and dry, that this technique conserved the moisture in the ground. As you can understand, right? If the, if the vine's up off the ground, the sun gets in and, and drags the moisture out. If you've got a vine laying along the ground in the leaves and the canopy, the moisture stays under there. That's why we put mulch on our gardens. Right? Similar sort of, sort of principle there. So the technique there was they, to conserve moisture, to, to protect uh, the vine. They'd wait till the thing blossomed. And then they'd go along with sticks or stones and and prop up the branches so that the fruit could start developing. So that's the ancient farming technique in the Middle East for vines. And Jesus would have known this. The disciples would have known this. We're not sure what's happening here because Jesus has just said, rise, let us go from here. But then in chapter 18, It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley. So there's two options here. Either he's doing a a fantastic, great preacher's pause and says, we're going to go, but no, hey, I've just got something else to say. And they're still in the upper room. Or as they are walking from the upper room, which was some way from the Garden of Gethsemane, they may have been walking, and this is speculation, across the valley viewing the vine. May have. But the text doesn't tell us. But what Jesus is doing 
Is he saying, I am the true vine? Now, this is not a new concept. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 5. Bibles, please turn back to Isaiah chapter 5 and we'll, we'll read about the vineyard song of Isaiah. First seven verses, I'm going to read these for you to help build some historical context. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines to build a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes but it yielded wild grapes. Oh, now, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more has there to do with, for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that the rain rain no more. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah and his are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, behold, an outcry. They knew that Israel had been likened to a vineyard. When Jesus said, I am the true vine, they knew what he was referring to because historically the nation had been likened to God's vineyard. We read it here in chapter 5. What does God do? He digs, he clears, he plants, he provides security by giving it a watchtower. But what happens? There's no fruitfulness. There's wild grapes. And then the picture is explained clearly in verse 7. I've had enough of you, O house of Israel. I've had enough of you, O men of Judah. I was looking for justice. I was looking for righteousness. These are the fruit I wanted to see from this vineyard which I've tended for all these years. But all I see is bloodshed and outcry. You see, the remarkable fact is whenever you read about the vineyard in the Old Testament, historic Israel is referred to. But the key thing is, is Israel's failure to produce good fruit that is emphasized. So Israel never produced good fruit. And what came with that? God's threat of judgment upon the nation. So in contrast to such a failure, Jesus turns around and says, I am the true vine. He proclaims that he is the vine and his father is the farmer, the vine dresser. Jesus, through the new covenant relationship, which is about to be ratified through the cross, through the death, burial, and resurrection, supersedes Israel as the vine. Jesus is telling these disciples, the 11 of them that are with him, that he is the true vine. And he further explains this concept by saying, you must abide in me. What does a vine by nature do? It provides nourishment. It provides lifeblood. And he commands them, you must abide in me. This is the only I am statement where the Father is mentioned. God the Father. 
What's God's role here? Vine dresser, we would say farmer, but we don't often talk about grape growing being farming. So vine dresser is probably a better way of uh, describing it. What is the sole role of the vine dresser, of the farmer? We read in Isaiah that he digs, he clears, he plants, and he provides security. Right? It's understood that um, tending for a vine is potentially the hardest type of farming you can do. It takes great work. But the sole role of the vine dresser in all accounts in Scripture is to what? To ensure fruitful production. To ensure that much fruit is the result of the tending. In two ways we see what the vine dresser does here. We see two things that occur. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away and every branch that does not bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So he's, he's tuning in here and he says there's two roles that God the Father is doing here. Two roles. He's either taking away or he's pruning for the sole purpose that much more fruit can be born. Now this taking away has been a difficult concept for many. They say, oh, well, that must mean loss of salvation. No. Because that would clearly contravene other parts of John, clearly contravene John's testimony about true disciples preserving to the end. Look at John 6, 37 through 40, or John 10, 28. So there's two options that we can look at here. I think the clear purpose of the verse is to insist that there are no true Christian disciples and followers of Christ without some measure of fruit. Let me put that again. There are no true Christian followers of Christ without some measure of fruit. You cannot abide in the vine and not produce fruit. This may be startling to some of us, but that is the truth of what we have here in Scripture. You cannot abide in the vine and not produce fruit. Fruitfulness is an infallible mark of true Christianity. What's happening here? These branches with absolutely no life, they have never borne fruit, so they must be taken away or some translations say cut off. Bearing fruit, they'd be pruned to bear more fruit. one way of viewing this verse. Another option, another viable option of viewing this whole taking away business, and one I think I prefer slightly above the other, relates to the actual word that is used here. Arrow is the word that's used, and elsewhere in the New Testament it's translated in this way, to lift up, to raise to a higher place of position, to pick up. The reason I think about that is, remember we talked about what a vine was? How the vine laid along the ground? How the vine dresser would come along and take sticks and stones and pick, lift up the branches so they could bear fruit? Two options for you. I'll let you make the call. But the point is not whether it's lifting up of a branch or cutting off of a branch. The important point is the issue of bearing fruit. So let's not lose the context of that. If you're a disciple and follower of Christ, you bear fruit. Pruning is a part of that process as well, and, and, and pruning is a tough process. What's pruning all about? It's about removing the impediments that stop growth. 
You know, Hebrews chapter 12, we look at that. God disciplines those he loves. He places us in the refiner's fire to prune us and to shape us and to grow us for us to be more like Christ. To be fruit bearers. And that's a tough place to be sometimes as you go through the refiner's fire. As you go through that pruning as, as the Lord grabs hold of your heart and shapes you in a way that you weren't anticipating. We'll talk a little bit more about that a little bit later. I just want to reread verses 4 to 8. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and in my words, abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you may bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As I said before, you can't get away from this language of abiding and remaining. And this relates, and John starts dealing with this, this relates solely to the command to love one another. You know, the vine produces, Christ produces nourishment for us as branches. So therefore, in your Christian service, in your ministries, in your discipleship, unless it is done through the power and the nourishment of the vine, it is bad fruit. So often we can run off and do things under the, the signs of Christian ministry and they're removed from the vine. And they'll bear the fruit accordingly. So abide, remain in him. Here we see those that don't remain will be judged, thrown into the fire. I think this may be an allusion back to Ezekiel chapter 15. We haven't got time to read that. I encourage you to have a look at that. But here in the New Testament, what could this possibly mean? I think it has an allusion towards the judgment seat of Christ. All right, if you go to Romans chapter 14, let's read Romans 14 together. Romans 14 says this. Uh, where shall we start? Verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Question. Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before this judgment seat of Christ, seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God so that each of us will give an account of himself to God. If you move over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you have a similar verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So as a follower of Christ, even though our sins have been forgiven, even though we have this marvelous truth that our sins aren't accounted to us anymore, there will be a time when we'll stand before our precious Savior. There will be a time where we need to give an account. whether we have been fruitful or unfruitful, where we have remained in him 
or gone our own way. That too is a place of grace, by the way. It's not a place of fear. It's a place of grace because the penalty of your sin has been dealt with. Right? Christ has dealt with that. He has paid for your sin, which is a wonderful thing. This judgment seat of Christ is a place for an account of your service to him. And it's a place of grace. So the overall purpose here in abiding and remaining is to bear much fruit. Verse 5, verse 7, verse 8, and verse 16. And the purpose is to give the Father glory. Don't miss that point. As we abide in Christ, as we keep his commandments, as we love him, we give the Father glory. This suggests that the fruit and the vine imagery represents everything that is the product of effective prayer in Jesus' name including, as we will see, obedience to his commands, experience of his joy, and as we read earlier in chapter 14, his peace, which passes all understanding. See, fruit is nothing less than an outcome of persevering dependence on Christ, on the vine. This fruit is driven by faith, It embraces all our lives and our witness. This is what it means to be disciple strong. To abide in him. To abide in Christ's love. I think one of the wonderful things about this passage is it highlights a great need for us as followers of Christ to catch a glimpse of this wonderful truth. You see, the great temptation most of us face is to believe that very little ever happens in our Christian life, right? Uh, We think we, we, we still stumble and we fall short of the high calling that is ours in Christ. I think if I did a survey around the congregation, we would think that way, right? But these verses, this scripture encourages us to hold a far different view. Why? Because they enlarge what God has done for us. God is a caring, loving vine dresser who cultivates by his grace so that you can bear fruit. God has done this through the person and work of Christ, who has died on your behalf, who has risen again, and says, remain in me, abide in me. This relates, this whole thing relates to our union in Christ. If we had had time, we'd just go to Ephesians. Go to Ephesians this week, folks. Go and have a look at the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1. You'll be astounded at the amount of times you will see this word, in Christ. And the blessing that gives you with this union you have in Christ. See, our union with Christ lies at the heart of the Christian life. If you don't abide in him, you can do nothing. That's what the verse states time and time again. So the first question is, are you united to Christ? I don't know all of you here. But Jesus, the sovereign Lord of the universe, came to this earth 2,000 years ago to give his life as a ransom for you. He paid the price. 
He died a cruel death. Three days later, he rose again. Why? So that you and I could have life. Folks, if you don't know the Lord, deal with your sin today. Come to his throne of grace. This gospel is alive. It will give you joy. It will give you a life that you you will not be able to comprehend because Christ is your vine. The second thing here is maybe you're nominal in relation to your discipleship. The gospel of grace applies in this situation as well. The same gospel applies, folks. Repent of your view of your life and say, Lord, just use me. Enable me to understand what it means to dwell within. Enable me to understand to have union with you so that I may be a fruit bearer. I challenge you, if you're struggling with these things, to grow in your union with him by understanding the gospel in your life afresh. In the balance of these verses, 9 through 17, I don't have time to read them. I just want to make a couple of points here. See, the metaphor of the vine and the, and the branches, etc., has some limitations. And what verses 9 to 17 do is start showing you the unfathomable love that sets the disciples in this new intimacy. So it says, you are abiding in Christ, and, and this is a deep, deep love. And it's modeled on the obedience of, the, of Christ to the Father and his love for us. See, obedience demonstrates the reality of love. That's why you have in here so many times, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you just keep commandments, it doesn't show you that you love somebody. It's the other way around. If you are constantly in Christ and and he is your Lord, you will keep his commandments wholeheartedly. He shows an amazing transition here. He stops calling them disciples and he calls them friends. They transition from slaves and servants to friends, these disciples. Because, you know, Jesus' friends are objects of his love and are obedient to him. This whole thing of being a friend of Christ is a status more elevated than disciples where, where servants or slaves simply told, are told what to do. Friends are given more information which enables them to attain a fuller understanding in their obedience. And then finally, in the, in the end of these verses, he says, you are my friends. I have chosen you and I appoint you to go and bear fruit that your fruit should abide and so whatever you ask the Father in my name he will give it to you these things I command you so that you will love one another he's directly talking to disciples they were to be appointed to bear abiding fruit everlasting fruit which relates to mission in the context here I'm sending you into the world to proclaim me. So in summary, if you looked at that paragraph, Christ's love conquers all. What it means is to be strong in Christ is to understand afresh his love. And you must remain in his love. So, questions. Are you bearing much fruit as a follower of Christ? Are you consistently being nourished by the vine? Do you consider the fruit shaping by God in your life as an extreme act of love and care which results in much fruit? 
would you consider your obedience as a disciple of Christ to be driven out of love or from obligation? These are some of the questions we're faced with as we wrestle with this passage. If you don't know Christ, then none of this will make sense. And I implore you today, brothers and sisters, if you don't know Christ, take this time to get to know him. Ask the person who bought you, what is this about? How can I be freed from my sin? How do I abide in the vine? If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, if you're a disciple, you must remain and abide in the vine. You see, these 11 didn't know what was about to happen, but Jesus was comforting them. He was providing instruction to them. He was saying, abide in me to the glory of the Father. You don't know what the future holds. We've had one of those weeks in our church that's flawed all of us. For tragedy, we have sickness, we have things that we do not understand. But I want to pass on to you today. We do understand we can abide in him. His love is amazing. Remain, abide, keep his commandments. We don't know what the future holds, folks. But we know who holds the future. Abide. Remain. Just as in Boston, they thought the city could rally together and become strong because love conquers all. I'm here to tell you, love does conquer all. The love that conquers all is Christ's love. So as disciples of Christ, let us be strong. Let us be disciples strong. And let's never forget the abiding love of Christ.